Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we have nothing to fear because your perfect love casts out all fear. And we thank you that the thing that we have to fear the most as sinful, broken humans is God and his wrath towards sin. And yet that fear has been dealt with in Christ, in his perfect sacrifice for our sin. That we no longer are under wrath, but instead we've been reconciled to God. And therefore, your position towards us is love. And we thank you that that fear, the fear of God, the fear of our maker, no longer controls our lives and our thinking, but instead we can walk in love for you, knowing that your stance towards us is grace and mercy. And we praise you for that. And I pray that your love towards us would cause us to desire to please you and to walk in obedience, to live lives that are for your glory. Lord, I ask that as we look at your word this morning, that what I say about it would be according to what your word teaches, that you would protect us from error, that your Holy Spirit would guide us in truth. And Lord, I pray that as we talk about this subject this morning, that our hearts would burn with a passion for the mission that you have given your people. That what motivates your heart towards humanity to redeem and to save would also motivate our hearts towards those that you have placed in our lives. And we ask this to the praise of your glorious name. Amen. So open your Bible with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one of ours off the table in the back here, kind of by the door. Uh, You're welcome to keep that Bible. And uh, if you don't want to grab one of the Bibles, you can always pull it up on your phone. But we're going to be in 2 Timothy 4. You can just put a bookmark or a finger in there for now. We're going to get to this text in a couple of minutes. But first, what would you do if you found out that you were not being faithful to God's Word? If it became apparent to you that your apathy and your indifference to God's word was offensive to God, if it was suddenly exposed and you became aware of the fact that you are actually not walking according to what God's word teaches, how would you respond? Would you shrug your shoulders as if it wasn't a big deal, go about life as usual, as if it didn't matter at all, that you were just disregarding what God's word told you you should be doing? Or instead, would you tear your clothes in anguish? Would you feel great grief in your soul, unshakable grief, that you had been neglecting the things that God has spoken to you in his holy word? If you realized that you were full of apathy and disobedient, would you tear your house apart room by room, reevaluate your priorities, repent of your hard-heartedness, change everything to ensure that this apathy and indifference and the sin that you're guilty of were relentlessly rooted out of your life? Is that how you would respond if suddenly you became aware that you were neglecting the commands of Scripture? Now, unfortunately, I don't think many Christians would feel in their soul a deep sense of anguish or grief if they found out that they were not being faithful to God's word. 
I think they would do what a lot of Christians do, which is after the message, they would go home and within a couple of minutes, they'd forget about it as they enjoy their lunch and the real concerns of life creep back in Monday through Saturday. I've been reading the Old Testament during my personal Bible study time, and right now I'm in 2 Kings, and I recently read 2 Kings chapters two, uh, 22 and 23, and something jumped out of the Scriptures as I was reading those chapters. What we're told is that after many long generations of disobedience and evil and neglect of God's Word in Israel, particularly among the tribe of Judah and in Jerusalem, many generations of kings who rebelled against God and led the nation into sin. Finally, a new king named Josiah is placed on the throne in Jerusalem, and he sets to work having the temple in Jerusalem repaired and restored because for many years it had been forsaken. And in the process of restoring the temple, the high priest, Hilkiah, finds the book of the law discarded in some room in the temple. And he knows that this is a precious relic, and so he has it delivered to the king, and the book is read to the king. And when the king hears the words of the book of the law, the word of God so long ignored in Israel, he tears his clothes in anguish for the sins of his people against their holy God. And immediately he sets about to bring reforms to the kingdom that he leads, to turn the people once again to treasure the holy word of God and obey it. He is cut to the heart concerning his neglect for the scriptures, and he immediately seeks to bring change, to do something about it. And 2 Kings chapter 23 records all of his efforts. Let me just give you a snippet of some of the verses that we encounter there. It says, he deposed the priests, those who burned incense at the altar of Baal, the false god. He brought out the Asherah idol from inside the house of the Lord and he burned it. He beat it to dust and then he cast the dust upon the graves of the common people. He broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord he broke down the high places and defiled the Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, so that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. And he sacrificed all of the priests of the high places who were there. He sacrificed them on the altars and burned their bones on them. It's actually a long chapter. That's just a very brief summary, a small sample. But that is how you show repentance. That is how you show sincerity to obey God. A total transformation where you even burn to ashes the path that could take you back to the way from which you came so that you cannot turn back. And we find a similar kind of repentance recorded for us in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians Chapter 7, verses 10 through 11, it just says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, meaning that you don't feel like in repenting of these things you've lost anything, as if you might go back to them because you miss them. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. 
but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. As Christians, this is how we should respond when we become aware that we've sinned against God or that we've neglected His Word or that we've let our hearts be weighed down with apathy and indifference to the things that God says are important to Him. We should respond with a total reorientation back to the things of God with all of our heart and all of our strength and all of our mind, all of our soul. Now, all of that was to prepare you for what I'm going to say next. I believe that we are guilty of neglecting God's Word. I don't think that that's just the case for our church. I think that this is true of evangelicalism, Christianity in general in America today. And just as Josiah rediscovered the book of the law and reoriented God's people back to faithfulness around God's word, I think that we need to rediscover what the Bible teaches to the people of God about the mission that God has given to his church. So let's read together from our text, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and let me show you what I mean. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, his disciple, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I read five verses, and I'll try and deal with all of them, but I want to call your attention to just primarily one phrase in order to address our apathy this morning. It's there in verse 5. Do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. This is the mission of God's people. To do the same work that Jesus did, the same work that Paul did, the same work that Timothy did, to make disciples, beginning with proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, available to all people through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm a human just like you, and so I know exactly how this works. The first thing that we almost always do when we hear a command in Scripture that we don't like or that we haven't been faithful to or that we really don't want to reorient our lives around, we try to wiggle out from under it. We try to figure out why we can explain it away or excuse it so that we can go on neglecting and not doing what we've not been doing. And the easiest way to do that with this command, do the work of an evangelist, would be by simply pointing out 
that this is not God speaking a command to all people in all places and all times. This is just Paul speaking to Timothy. And so this is not for the church in America in the 21st century. I mean, look, Grady, it's literally right there in the text. Don't you see? You're supposed to be an exegete of Scripture. Verse 5, Paul says, As for you, that is a first-person singular pronoun, clearly referring to Timothy. My name isn't there in the text. And it's again in there in verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul writes, I charge you, first person, singular pronoun, Timothy. And so Grady, the call to do the work of an evangelist, that's not for me. Paul is talking to Timothy. But you're wrong. You're wrong first because God has always had a succession plan in motion for the mission of the church in every generation. Jesus himself was an evangelist. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says that he came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And praise God, that's why he came, because that's why you're here. And when Jesus finished his work, he passed that work on to the apostles, but he passed it on in particular to Paul in Acts chapter 9. You can go read that story. And so what did Paul do? Paul became an evangelist. And then when Paul was at the end of his work as an evangelist, he writes a letter to Timothy and he passes on to him that baton right here in this passage. And in passing it on to Timothy, we find it here recorded for all people in God's word, according to the intention of the Spirit of God, giving this command, I believe, to every person in every generation. This did not end with Timothy, and I hope to persuade you that that's the case. This is obvious, I think, from the context in which this command is embedded. Beginning in verse 1. We're given this charge in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. This is the God before whom every Christian must walk in obedience, not the God who just ruled and reigned over the apostles in the first generation of the church. This is the God who's going to judge the living and the dead. That is to say, this is the God whose authority is operative in every time, in every place over the church. In other words, he's not the God who gave commands to Christians long ago, the apostles who then died and took those commands with them to the grave. No, he's the God whose commands echo through every generation to all of his people. This is the God who will stand in judgment over all of mankind. And that God has given a charge. In verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. Now again, you might see, ah, I see, Grady. It says preach. You're the preacher. I'm just the congregant. That's not my spiritual gift, so I don't have to preach the word. This is not a command for me. But this word preach in Greek is the word keruso. And what it really means is proclaim. It's not referring to preachers in any sort of technical sense. As if there are those who K. Russo and then there's everybody else. 
No, this is for God's people. We proclaim. We find this same word at the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus says to his followers, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The disciples did not proclaim this message of repentance and faith and salvation in the name of Christ to the nation of America. No, that's what God has given for you to do. That's your work. That's my work. That's why we are here. So when Paul commands Timothy, preach the word, he's only passing on this command that Christ gave to his followers to proclaim the good news That because of Christ's death and resurrection, forgiveness is available to all who believe. You understand that this is part of the reason why God has called you to be a Christian. Not merely so that you might receive all the benefits of the gospel, but so that you might also proclaim to others all of the benefits of the gospel. But look again at our text from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Because the warning that we find in this verse, which comes to us by the hand of Paul who wrote it, but through the wisdom of the Spirit of God who declares it, it's a warning that speaks to every generation of Christians. What I'm trying to help you see is that all of this passage is not merely intended for one point in time, the time at which Paul wrote it, but it applies even to our time. This is a warning that speaks to every generation of Christians. These verses are not merely for Timothy. They're for all of us. Verse 3, the time is coming. And if you read on, it sounds suspiciously like our time, doesn't it? A time when people will turn away from the truth and wander off. They won't endure sound teaching. They'll prefer instead the kind of teaching that tickles the ears to make them feel good about themselves. And the appropriate Christian response to those who turn away from the truth, to a generation that rejects God, is to do what Paul says, a series of commands in verse 5. Commands that apply no less today than they did to Timothy, which is why they're recorded for us. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. These are actions necessary for Christians today, aren't they? The fourth one, the fourth exhortation, fulfill your ministry. We'll come back to the third one, but every Christian's been given a ministry. What's yours? I may not know the specifics of what your ministry is, but whether you're a pastor or not, you belong to the body of Christ, which means you serve God as a minister. And you heard 2 Corinthians chapter 5 read, particularly verse 18, tells us explicitly that God has given to each of us the ministry of reconciliation. Through us, God continues to bring the work of reconciling the world to himself by the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. If you didn't know what your ministry was before today, now you do. At least part of it. 
Your ministry is not exactly the same as Timothy's. That's true. He was called to be an elder and a leader of the early church. Your ministry is not exactly the same as mine. I'm here to preach and lead as a pastor. But there is a sense in which each of us do have the same ministry. It is the ministry of reconciliation. It is the ministry of bringing many sons and daughters into the family of God as we proclaim the good news of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful ministry that is. Have you ever walked with somebody as they come to understand that God has reconciled their sins through the work of Christ? There's no more beautiful experience in all of life. And you understand that other people engaging in that work of ministry, that's why you're here. At some point along the way, someone came alongside of you and helped you understand more clearly reconciliation with God. And that changed everything for you. It's changed the lives of all the people sitting around you in this room. The ministry of reconciliation that God has given his people to do. So look again at verse 5. It has four commands which Paul gives to Timothy. It would be absurd to say that three of them apply to us. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Finish your ministry. But the command to do the work of an evangelist, no, 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 no. That one is different category. So here's the point. You cannot wiggle out from under this command in Scripture without ignoring the Word of God. You can't do it. Jesus gave the work of evangelism to all those who would come after him even to the end of the age. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, and so we must fulfill that ministry by sharing the gospel of reconciliation, the good news. And through proclaiming the good news, we will stand against the spirit of the age, opposing those who turn from the truth. Now, I hope that I've persuaded you that this command to do the work of an evangelist is actually a command for your life. And I hope that maybe you come to realize, I, I, I've been neglecting that command. And maybe it's not appropriate for you to tear your clothes here at church, but I hope that you are cut to the heart. Because this is an important question. Have you neglected this command? Have you been faithful to proclaim the gospel, to do the work of an evangelist? And if you have neglected it, are you willing to respond like Josiah? Will you make it the ambition of your life to obey this command just as you seek to obey the other commands that Christ has given you? Maybe it will be helpful for us to unpack a little bit more what is the work of an evangelist? If we're supposed to obey this command, what does an evangelist do? do? What work are they about? Well, let's consider, to begin with, the word itself. This word also comes from the Greek, obviously, euangelion, the Greek word that means good news or a person who brings good news. 
An evangelist is a person who brings good news. Is that how you feel when you are talking about Jesus? If you are to point people to Jesus, do you feel like you are bringing them some good news? Or do you feel like you're placing upon them some burden? Are you embarrassed to talk about the Jesus who has saved you and changed your life? Who does not like to bring good news? I like to bring good news. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to share some good news. I was just talking with Heidi before church, and she shared with me the good news that they're going to have a son, and her face was beaming with that good news, right? I remember when I was a chaplain for the police department here in Maricopa, from time to time I would be required to go deliver a death notification. That's not good news. I would have to go ring the doorbell of someone's house and to deliver to them the bad news that someone in their family was now deceased. Man, that was a terrible responsibility. I did not enjoy delivering news like that. I would have much preferred to deliver good news. Something like, hey, we're going to pay off your mortgage today. Hey, I got these keys to a cabin in the woods by a secluded lake and it's yours for free. Have it. I'd love to deliver that news. But as Christians, as evangelists, we bring even better news. We bring news, good news of eternal significance. Our good news is the gospel. God actually loves this world that he has made. As screwed up and ridiculous and wicked and evil and almost hopeless as it appears, God loves this world and he sent his son into this world to die and redeem this world. That's good news. We get to tell people that although they're dead in their sin, which is bad news, God has seen fit to show them mercy. He sent his son to pay the full penalty for their sin. The debt is paid. The mortgage has been paid off. The sin is no longer accounted for so that they might be set free from the slavery that ruins them and be changed forever. And all that they have to do, receive it. Repent, turn, believe, trust in the work of Christ. And all of the fullness of the kingdom of God is then theirs in this life and forevermore. That is good news. Doing the work of an evangelist is simply seeking to speak the truth into this world every opportunity that we get. To make much of Jesus Christ by saying on the cross, reconciliation has been accomplished for you. And we see the early Christians, eh, they were kind of mixed about this. They were sort of excited, but we get this picture in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, where we're told that once persecution came, because they weren't going out to do the work, persecution came to Jerusalem, and God sent them out. And they went out, scattered from Jerusalem because of that persecution. They went about preaching the word, doing the work of an evangelist. They shared with a dark world the glory of Christ, inviting people into the kingdom of God just as Jesus had taught them to do. 
calling people to repent and follow Christ, that those people might be saved out of darkness, out of sin, out of evil, into everlasting life, into light, into truth and goodness and hope and love and obedience and grace and favor. And lots of people rejected the message, that's true. But some believed. And some were saved. Some were redeemed. And what a joy that was. For some of those early Christians, the work was done far and wide. We know that the Apostle Paul traveled through almost all of the known Roman world at that time to spread the good news. For others, it was done close at home. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, we come to find that Paul planted Timothy in the church in the city of Ephesus and told him to stay there so that he might raise up elders and equip the church. And then in the second letter that Paul writes, 2 Timothy, Paul addresses Timothy and he tells this man, even as you're building the church, don't forget, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Right here at home, Timothy, right there in Ephesus where you've been planted, right there where you're building the church, Timothy, don't neglect to do the work of an evangelist. Spread the good news to those who have not yet accepted it. So let's reflect one more time on this good news that we suppose or that we're supposed to share. It's laid out for us in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 21. You already heard it read, but I'd love for you to turn there in your Bible with me again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Actually, let's start in verse 17. Second Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Man, looking around this room... I can see people who are a new creation. That's a beautiful thing. Man, I've been so excited to hear how God is changing Nate's life and Jenny's life. A new creation. Go ask Ryan to tell you his story. God's made him a new creation. I could go around the room and share lots of stories like that. Sarah, I see so many faces. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Who have you implored recently to be reconciled to God? Verse 21, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. Him who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. 
So here's the good news. You can be a new creation through Christ Jesus. Because God sought you out in order to restore between you and him a right relationship. God has reconciled the divide between your sin and his holiness. He has solved that chasm so that you can have peace with God. God put your sinfulness upon his own holy son, Jesus Christ, so that through Christ you might be made righteous, just, pure, holy even. And God has made us then ambassadors, entrusting to us this good news of reconciliation. So I would ask you again, how should we respond when we find out that we've neglected God's word? How should we respond if the Holy Spirit convicts us that we've not prayed for our neighbors or our coworkers or our friends? or maybe our spouse, or maybe just the city of Maricopa. If we have failed to boldly proclaim and implore people with a message of hope and salvation through Jesus Christ, if we've disobeyed God's command to share this message of reconciliation and be his ambassadors and do the work of an evangelist, what should we do? We should be like Josiah, right? We should turn again to God in faith and repentance. We should renew our commitment to obey everything that God has commanded us to do. But here's the problem. The problem is not that we have not done this work. I mean, that is a problem, but it's not the real problem. The real problem is why we have not done this work. Why have we not done it? We've not done it because our hearts are not in it. That's why. Because our hearts are not in it. Our hearts do not burn with pity for those who are far from God. Like the great preacher Charles Spurgeon who said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Could we say that? We just don't have this kind of heart passion for people from far from God. And more than that, this is what we, or more than anything, this is what we really need. We need a change of heart. Our hearts have grown cold. We have forgotten. We've forgotten that one time we were enemies of God. We were far from God. We were God-haters ourselves. And in love, God came to find us, to make us friends and children of God. We've forgotten that once we were actually damned in our sins and God in his grace redeemed us. We've lost sight of God's heart for people far from him, the same people that we once were, far from him. And the result is that we don't really care to share the good news anymore. We don't even believe that people will receive it. 
We've forgotten the wonder of the gospel. We have forgotten that the gospel is powerful to actually penetrate a heart that is hard. And we think the hardened human heart is more powerful than the gospel. We forgot this good news that before we were righteous, before we knew the Bible, before we sought Jesus and we lived a life to please him, while we were still poor and wretched and blind, God saved us. We've forgotten these things. We've forgotten how miserable and wretched and proud we used to be. And so we've lost our compassion for people who are miserable and wretched and proud. We forgot that once upon a time we were resistant to the gospel. Maybe that's you. Maybe you'd heard it a dozen times and you didn't care. And then one day God opened your eyes. And because we forgot that we were resistant, we've given up on those who are resistant. We think I shared it once. They should know better. We forgot how persistent God has been when he brought us to our knees in faith, even though that's where we did not want to be. And as a result, because we forgot how persistent God was, we have stopped persisting in proclaiming the good news. We forgot how comfortable we once found the darkness. Now we look at people in darkness and we think, unbelievable, shame on them. Who could live with such a worldview? And we have forgotten that once we loved that worldview, we were comfortable. Before we were shown the light of Christ, we loved the darkness. And so we've come to despise those who love the darkness. Instead of calling them to come out and into the safety of the light of Christ. Yes, as Christians, we need to go out and we need to do the work of an evangelist like Scripture says. But we're not going to do that unless we first have had our own hearts changed by this good news. If you don't know how good the gospel is, then you're never going to be moved to share it with others. So I would ask you, have you forgot how good the gospel is? If you don't remember what an awful wretch you were, and you don't rejoice over the new creation that you now are, then you're not going to have a passion to share this good news. And so we need to receive again this good news, which has the power then to transform us into the kind of people who will proclaim this good news. And so as this new year begins, here's my prayer for you that you would do the work of an evangelist because you've received the good news. You know the joy of being reconciled to God. My prayer is that all of us, like Josiah, would repent and would turn back to the word of God with passion, that we would give ourselves over to the mission of God in faithfulness and obedience because we know how much God loves us, because we've been redeemed. Because we've been reconciled to God, let us therefore be ambassadors of reconciliation. Let's pray. God, I ask that by your grace this would not be a a message that feels heavy-handed, but that instead we would go from here rejoicing 
reminded of what we have received in Christ Jesus. That we have peace with God, that we do not need to fear, that it is well because of what Christ has done for us. And Lord, as recipients of the riches of Christ and all of the kingdom of heaven, this everlasting eternal reward that we have been given by faith through grace in Christ, God, I pray that we would be ambassadors boldly proclaiming this message, relentlessly sharing it without shame or fear. And if people reject us, Lord, then we would just move on joyfully looking for another person to share this good news with. And Lord, as a congregation, as a people together, we do come before you united on behalf of our, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, these people lost in darkness, these people who in sin love the darkness. And God, we beseech you, we, we pray on their behalf that you would change their hearts, that you would open their eyes, that you would pour out your mercy, that you would use us as we do the work of an evangelist to make new creations of these people. Lord, only you can do that. Only you can bring the change. May we be faithful in the work, and we ask that you would respond by changing hearts. In Christ's name, amen.